Good morning. Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. We're glad that you're here to join us as we worship God by offering our prayers and singing songs and listening to scripture. Please come in with us that we may worship God together. I bring you the word of the Old Testament today from the book of Ecclesiastes. But before I read this very familiar passage, I'm going to read you something a little surprising from my own Old Testament textbook. The book of Ecclesiastes presents us with a chest full of puzzles. Each time we open it, we have to cope again with its style, track down its arguments, decode its imagery. And when we do, we sense God at work. We see our human problems laid bare. We find warnings against our simple solutions. We sharpen our longing for the one whose cross and resurrection are the windows on the fullness of what God wants human life to be. So listen afresh. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what has been planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain have the workers from their toil? I have seen the business that God has given to everyone to be busy with, he has made everything suitable for its own time. Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future into their minds, yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and to enjoy themselves for as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in their toil. I know that whatever God does endures forever, and nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. 
God has done this so that all should stand in all before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already is. And God seeks out what has gone by. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for those of you who know me well, these are placed here and I've needed them already. It is so, so good to be back with you. I miss you. Many of you know that I have stayed in touch. I read my bulletin diligently every week, so do not stop mailing them out. And I, um, it's great to be home. And I'll just leave it at that and we can hug and kiss a little bit more. Our New Testament lesson stays in um, the Christmas season, for we are still in Christmas. And so we just have a few verses from the gospel according to Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 21. Listen again for the word of God. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This ends the reading. Will you pray with me? Holy God, God of the law and God of life, we come before you and ask that you would silence in us any voice but your own, that we would hear your living word for our life today. Amen. For those of you who grew up memorizing Bible verses to earn that gold star on the poster board in the Sunday school room, I wonder how many of you memorized Ecclesiastes 3, 12 to 13. I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. It is a delightful antidote to the religion that teaches that suffering is God's only language or that misery is the only path to understanding. What if God's vision for us includes this sort of pleasure? Enjoy yourself. Eat, drink, relish in your labor before you. How do we start to see the ordinary parts of life as more than fuel to get us to the serious business of life, but start to see that ordinary part of life as indeed the serious business of life itself. 
So many of us have our Bible listening ears tuned to hear Scripture telling us what should be, what might be, rather than what already is. We have been taught to read and take away from the Bible tasks that we ought to be doing. On our good day, we listen to the commandments and start making a list of how to improve in the morality department. On our bad days, we hear those same commandments and start making lists for the other people. We hear what they need to start doing to live the moral life. We read God's blueprint for life together, community living, and we start to worry how those folks are getting it wrong and how they need to get their act together. Or we flip to the end of Matthew and we read that vision of Jesus saying to his people, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And we mentally sort through all the strangers and the hungry and the thirsty and the imprisoned. And we ask ourselves if we've done enough. Have we shown up and ministered in such a way that we have seen Christ in the stranger? Did we tend to their needs or did we turn our heads and help ourselves and avoid our neighbor? Did we welcome the stranger in our midst as much as we celebrate the friend? Did we go visit the sick? Or did we offer that task to someone else, maybe someone on staff? What was initially a lesson in Christ's solidarity with the suffering and our opportunity to connect has been turned into yet another commandment, a new way that we should live. And instead of a generous invitation to a new possibility, a new encounter with the divine, it has turned into a measuring stick for righteousness. Our church minds have been tuned and trained to think in terms of ought and should, rarely of what is. But here in Ecclesiastes, we are given a new indication without evaluation, without judgment, bypassing guilt entirely, a new picture of what life is like. Ecclesiastes, you see, is not a prescription, but a description. This is not the word of God telling us what to do or how we should be doing things. It's not a list of oughts for the new year or a list of what should have been for the past year. Instead, it's a stark pairing of what life brings. The biblical poet has taken stock of life and offers it back to us without elaboration, without emotion. We encounter a list of life verbs that we all know. A list that no matter what our age, we can identify with and find ourselves in. That wretched and painful part of life and the glorious and spectacular windows we have. Death and mourning, war, 
but we're also reminded of embracing and loving and dancing. One of the ways to reflect on this text and on our lives is simply to identify the words to describe what your experience is right now. I will tell you, I was getting ready early this morning and looking up the Psalms and things, and I must say it was kind of fun to see my own writing in your pew Bible, in the public Bible, things I had added over the years. You're allowed to write in your Bibles. Take it home and look at Ecclesiastes and circle where you are and add a date. And in 10 years from now, you'll be in a different place. If we simply identify those verbs that mark where we are, to look back and say, this is who we are, without judgment, without emotion, without guilt, just identify our space and time, both as an individual, as a family, and as a church family. Are you preparing for birth in your family or holding a new little one, learning their smile, memorizing that giggle? Or are you still reeling from a death, weeping at every hymn, Unsure when the daily crying will stop and not even sure if you want it to stop. A time to be born and a time to die. Time to kill and a time to heal. Are you seeking vengeance or are you recovering? I know it's terribly unchurchy to even admit that we have this part of ourselves, this destructive bent. But when dealing with reality as the Bible does so well, it gets to the nitty-gritty of life and our experience. And Scripture certainly is not encouraging that ugly side of our hearts to flourish, but neither are we enticed to shame right away. Ecclesiastes provides a linguistic mirror to help us see our lives more clearly. What is our reality? What time is it? What time is it for this church? Are you weeping and mourning or dancing and laughing? Are you building a life and keeping every picture your child brings home and putting it on the refrigerator? Or are you preparing to move? Move yourself or someone into a smaller home and passing things by, realizing that you have fewer needs, admitting that life changes. There is a time to keep and a time to throw away. The scripture is not for the stoic. Wisdom poetry does not place much value on a stiff upper lip, and it doesn't allow for chirpy optimism or gloom. There's only probably about four of you who know who the Indigo Girls are, but for those four, the Atlanta-based group really wrote it well when they sing, is the glass half full or half empty? I ask her as I fill it, and she says it really doesn't matter. Pretty soon you are bound to spill it. The nature of life, as we know from our earliest days in the playground, in the classroom, to the hospital rooms, 
and the graveyard is that life changes. And time may not heal all wounds, but it does move, and it continues to bring changes. Some are welcome and joyful, and some are painful and absolutely exhausting. And that is one thing that we all have in common. No matter what time it is in our own life, it has not always been this way, and it will not always stay this way. And as a congregation, you know this better than most. Over the last couple years, you have lived the words, a time to weep and a time to mourn. And you have not been alone in this journey. From afar, you have been prayed for and held close. Strangers you haven't even met celebrated on a certain day that you voted. And now the page is being turned. And none of us here is naive enough to think that everything will be perfect in the next chapter. But we can be encouraged. We can take the sense of shifting time to heart and trust that you are on a good path. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And so what time is it for First Presbyterian? A time to plant a time to build up, a time to love, a time for peace. And that is my prayer for you. Just as life itself brings changing at times, so does life with God have its own cycle and its own seasons. And I'm sure you've been told over the years and already know that the 12 days of Christmas are not the 12 days before December 25th, but they are the 12 days from Christmas until Epiphany, 12 days of celebration, the Christian season to focus on the glory and the mystery of the Incarnation. As much as I can get cranky about the consumerism of Christmas, there is something wonderful about these 12 days. For the world itself is finished with Christmas. They have put up their decorations. They've put the crush away, and they are moving on. And this is our season. This is our season to enjoy the feast, our season to reread and reflect on the stories of Jesus' birth, to linger over the shepherds in Luke, and the wise men in Matthew. Today's short passage of Jesus' first months with us. Jesus' God time did not wait until his ministry. It's not that we have a baby and then a man. There are little episodes we are given. He was born to Mary and Joseph observant Jewish folks who knew that God invites us to mark time, to set apart the sacred, not to be showy, but to remind us of the holy. I trust that if there are footnotes in your Bible, some of you have already looked back into Leviticus and looked back into Exodus to see what all this is about, this dedication and the two turtle doves. Obviously, this is the part of the sermon 
that could turn into a lecture, that half of you would go to sleep and the other half would start taking notes. And I will save you from that. It is New Year's Eve and I've gone on enough. But this is the meat of the matter. So I will lift up two things for you. One, the dedication of the firstborn, that firstborn episode, that reminds everyone that the God rescued the Israelites from Egypt. All of a sudden, with one little line, we are reminded that God rescued slaves. Could you imagine life first baby? You're right there. You're excited. You're nervous. And you are reminded in your religious tradition that you are not alone, that you are part of a bigger story of God's rescue, that you were once in a foreign land, that you were once slaves, and God rescued you. At the most precious and delicate time of a family's life, we are centered in God's mighty act of redemption. For Jesus, this was his inheritance. This was his story. Not because he was the son of God, but because he was a child of the covenant first, like each one of us. We do not dedicate on the eighth day, but we do baptize. Not because we are wonderful parents, or because your baby is the most exceptional baby in the world. We baptize because we are children of the covenant. All of a sudden, in God's time, we are entered and enfolded into God's promises, regardless of our holiness but because of God's holiness. Just as you probably did not memorize Ecclesiastes as a child, you may have skipped over Leviticus. There's a joke that even God gets bored with Leviticus. But I love it. I love it because it is so thorough about how to be neighbors, how to live in community, and the list of what to do when you wrong someone, was it your fault, was it by mistake? All of a sudden, we have these ways to live together. We also have ways to live together with God. We have details about how to deal with the divine. Not because God needs us to be this way, but because we need reminders of the importance of God's very presence we honor the faith that says when we are dealing with the divine, we are doing more than running into the grocery store or to the movie theater from some entertainment. We are setting the stage for ourselves to encounter the God who made us, the God who rescues us from slavery, the God who raises the dead to new life. This sin offering that we read about in Leviticus is not to buy our forgiveness. It is to remind us, with our pocketbooks, I will add, but to remind us that sin is heavy and important, and it demands our attention. For Mary, her offering was not because of her sin, but because she had just had a baby. It's hard to imagine something more earthy and more holy than birth itself. And it makes sense that one would want to connect with God. And it makes sense 
that scriptures offer us that path. Another reason that I love Leviticus is that it provides a way for the less wealthy among us to participate in the life of the divine. It is written, for those who cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle dove and two young pigeons. Leviticus already sets up for a really big church. Those who cannot afford a lamb, then they shall take two turtle doves and two pigeons. And with one little line, Luke shows us that Mary and Joseph have aligned with those who cannot afford. At the very beginning of Jesus' life, he is cast with a modest family and with a family that attends to its Jewish traditions. The detail mattered enough for Luke to include it. And you know how sparse these Bible stories are, and yet he kept it in there. So it begs for some attention. So you get to write that sermon yourself. Why did Luke want us to know that Mary only brought two turtle doves? Early readers would have known right away what that indicated. It's as if we were reading a modern story and the narrator doesn't tell us anything about a family except when running to the market, they used an EBT card to buy their groceries. And we know. There is a time for every matter under heaven. The world says that Christmas is over. And the church says that we still have six days to celebrate. Tomorrow is a new year. The Roman god Janus was the god of transitions, of gates, if you will. And those two faces that he had reminded the people that to move forward well requires a good look past. And I trust that your pastor Joel has helped you to do that as a church, to look back well, to identify what went well and what did not, to see what was within your control and what was beyond your reach. And today is a good day before the parties, before the football games, to look back to see what seasons the year has brought into your life, to close the calendar, and to greet the new year ready for God's divine work. And if all that navel-gazing is just too much for you, just remember our memory verse today. I know that there is nothing better for them to be happy to enjoy themselves as long as they live. And moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. May it be so. Amen. It's been a privilege to join you this day in worship. We're glad that you were here. First Presbyterian Church seeks to serve and minister in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor. Go in peace as you love and serve God.